what we're excited about it is potential um, hopefully leads down the path of a prevention for SUDEP. Fellow Hamasapiens, welcome back to Epilepsy Sparks Insights and actually our first episode of 2024. We don't mess around, so today we are chatting to epilepsy neurosurgeon Brian Delohi about his research into how SUDEP, or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, could be caused by a brain not feeling air hunger or the need to breathe following amygdala seizures. So rather than SUDEP being potentially caused by cardiac issues, maybe it's respiratory dysfunction. Now onto our star of the week, Brian Delohi. My name is Brian Delohi. I am a neurosurgeon and a uh, scientist as well, researcher. Um, at, currently at the University of Iowa, um, associate professor there. I uh, did my medical school training at NYU, New York University School of Medicine. Then I went to the University of Iowa for my residency in neurosurgery. Um, I did a postdoctoral fellowship there in epilepsy, um, where I started focusing on um, understanding SUDEP and how the brain controls breathing. Um, and I did a focused um, a fellowship um, in pediatric neurosurgery, so I do mostly pediatric um, neurosurgery. And I have a clinical interest in pediatric epilepsy surgery, um, and then again, my research is, is mostly uh, epilepsy and SUDEP. And what led you to this sphere? SUDEP is something that often scares a lot of people. I think we should all be talking about it. Uh, but tell us what led you to that part of the epilepsies. Um, I've always been interested in research um, and understanding how the brain functions. The you know, and I just kind of followed the science I, uh, and the data that I was gathering. I was actually working on emotion and um, fear and panic and anxiety and understanding how the brain processes that and how we as humans integrate, you know, and and, and uh, how the what areas of the brain then kind of control those those uh, perceptions that we have and those really in, the, in those conditions, those disorders. And that led me down a path of looking at breathing control. And then I kind of combined that with human data and, 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 and epilepsy. And it all just kind of, we, we came to this hypothesis. Yeah, all kind of together, kind of serendipity. And this hypothesis that uh, there may be areas in the brain that um, control breathing during seizures. And that's what leads to um, apnea during seizures and then pseudo. So your recent paper, um, I, I believe it's the one, failure to breathe persists without air hunger or alarm following amygdala seizures. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. Tell us about that because um, this, I, I honestly, this is complete coincidence. I was, I was talking to somebody else about SUDEP and breathing or not breathing at the same time. So this comes at like a really cool moment for myself. But tell us about your work and what you discovered in this. The We've been working on this, I would say, for like, and we have... You know, this is our third kind of paper in a row on this, but probably the last decade, the last 10 years. The, um, a lot of data came out like kind of early 2010s that suggested that, you know, SUDEP was probably more respiratory, you know, uh, dysfunction after a seizure or during a seizure um, rather than cardiac. Um, and, but the, really the mechanisms, you know, underlying how a seizure causes loss of breathing are really, were really unknown. And so then we started studying our, our epilepsy patients, right? So we studied them and, and we're studying my, my surgical patients. These are the patients that get implanted with electrodes to identify their seizure focus. And the goal there was to record their seizure activity and record um, their breathing at the same time they're having seizures. And, then, and at the same time that we're gonna functionally map their brain by electrically stimulating different parts of the brain to understand what their motor system is, their sensory system and their respiratory system, what controls breathing. Um, and interestingly found that when seizures spread to the amygdala 
or when we electrically stimulate, and it's the specific site in the amygdala, not the whole amygdala, um, and that's key, um, then patients will stop breathing. Really, we had no understanding of how, how this kind of occurred before that. Um, it was thought that maybe, you know, seizures somehow, you know, you know, affected the brainstem. But really how they did that was really unknown. So the amygdala seemed to be that kind of key, key structure. Interestingly, you know, um, and over time, I thought that there'd be many other sites and I would create, we'd be able to kind of create this respiratory kind of homunculus or network in the brain. And there'd be many sites that would inhibit breathing. But we've only really found this, this specific area in the amygdala um, so far to date. Now there may be other structures, but that's where we're kind of honing in on just because it seems to be such a, a critical um, structure and such have a potent ability to inhibit breathing in humans. So we've done this in adults. We have it then, um, we did this in even a, a person without epilepsy. So this function of the amygdala is probably in all of us. And we all have this, uh, the amygdala in all of us probably inhibits breathing and for different purposes, physiological purposes. But seizures hijack that area then to, to cause um, apnea during seizures. And um, are late. And so we did that in adults, we've done that in kids, again, patients without epilepsy, we've all seen found the same, same effect. We've done this now as young as two years of age and different, even different epileptic syndromes, tuberous sclerosis, um, all different types of uh, epilepsy and temporal lobe epilepsy, frontal lobe, frontal lobe epilepsy, generalized epilepsy, so forth. Our latest paper and what was um, so novel about it and what we're excited about it is potential, um, hopefully leads down the path of a prevention for SUDEP. Um, in patients with intractable epilepsy is this finding that in some patients, um, when seizures spread to the amygdala, they not only have apnea during a seizure, but that apnea then persists even after the seizure ends. And it can persist for even up to 15 minutes in what we saw in some patients. We'll have intermittent breaths, um, but in between these breaths might be 20 seconds of apnea, right? Um, and in the, in the patients that we studied, right, there are five out of 20 that we found this effect. Um, the, you know, the, there'll be this apnea as it almost gets longer and longer and longer um, after the seizure. And then in these patients, then if it, they, they're able to recover. And you can see this kind of slow recovery where, you know, they start breathing a little bit more and a little bit more regular. And then finally, they just, uh, they, they take off and then become regular again. Um, and it varied kind of on the timing in, in different patients. Interestingly, we could also stimulate the amygdala and even a smaller site in the amygdala and, and find a similar effect um, in, in, in five of the 20 patients where we stimulate, they'd cause apnea, but then the apnea then would persist even longer after the stimulation ended. Um, so it, that was help, helpful because it really kind of pinpointed this, this amygdala site and we can map it um, and we can find what kind of what nuclei are in, this, in the human amygdala that are involved in this, in this circuit. Um, and interestingly, in all of these patients that we've studied, they're not aware that they've stopped breathing. Um, and we think that's part of this really kind of critical, you know, part of the critical mechanism underlying uh, SUDEP is that not only do seizures spread to the amygdala and cause loss of breathing or apnea, um, but it also inhibits um, that amygdala structure is inhibiting that air hunger that you would typically have um, with such loss of breathing, right? Most people, you know, if you hold your breath for even just a couple of seconds, you're aware of it. Um, these patients, they're completely unaware of it. Um, so it's that kind of, they're not, you know, and SUDEP is that thing where people are, you know, they die alone in bed. It's um, that scary phenomena of just, there's a no alarm bells that go off, right? No one's alerted. Everyone's like, well, geez, how did this happen? I, you know, you know um, there's no, 
we didn't know. I mean, it, no, no one, you know, there was no cry for help, right? And that's because that, that, that those alarm bells aren't, aren't going off in the individual. And so we think it's like this two-hit hypothesis. That's our, that's what we have, this two-hit hypothesis that occurs that ultimately then leads to suit up. So, so hopefully, you know, we, we've been able to kind of map this circuit to the brainstem using the unique, unique tools like imaging um, um, in the MRI scanner while we stimulate the brain, electrically stimulate the, the amygdala. And so we could even find the circuit. We've been able to kind of uh, tease out mechanistically what areas of the brainstem we think are affected and their controlled breathing by studying patients in the operating room as well. And we find that, you know, there's this site, uh, well, that site in the amygdala also can in inhibit breathing, but also appears to inhibit like this chemosensory um, function that controls breathing. So we think that it's inhibiting like multiple pathways and breathing control, um, as well as our ability to sense breathing. So it's also inhibiting kind of the interoception, our internal sensation and integration of breathing signals up to the brain to tell us, hey, look, we're breathing, we're not breathing normally um, or we're not breathing at all. Do something different. Um, so. We think that um, these patients that, that have this kind of more persistent lo loss of breathing and that persistent kind of loss of the air hunger are the ones that are probably higher risk of SUDEP. And do we know why these people might have uh, less of that hunger? Is it, could it be a genetic thing or what, do you know? So that's the question. Why do some patients, I guess in general, because only five of the 20, right? Everyone everyone ha has this apnea when we simulate the amygdala. Everyone has apnea when seizures go to the amygdala. What, why is it that in some patients it persists, right? It puts them at higher risk. And we, we think um, that this is some kind of, uh, you know, epileptogenesis, um, repeated seizures that are changing the networks in the amygdala, in that circuit from the amygdala to the brainstem. Um, that uh, plays a role in that inhibition of breathing, as well as the other circuits that go to other parts of the brain, like the insula, which are involved in air hunger. So we, th we think that these patients probably, they may have a genetic risk factor for this as well. Um, they, um, uh, and maybe the types of seizures they've had, um, and that also may play a role, right? So some genetic components, there's this other component where probably repeated seizures also also has a, has a role in changing this, this network and the structure um, in the amygdala. But that network to, to the brainstem, we think is kind of critical. Does this kind of mean that perhaps if a per the longer a person has refractory epilepsy, potentially the higher their risk of pseudet may be? The, the data would bear that out too in the literature. Um, and uh, we see that, right? So it's intractable epilepsy patients. And you will see this occasionally in you know, a first time seizure or even like they haven't had a seizure in a long time and they have that. So there may be some other you know, components to it that we don't understand just yet, but some genetic components. Um, and there's definitely an environmental component, right? You know, we patients are in bed invariably, right? It's at, you know, at nighttime, right, in bed and they're found face down prone in bed. So, so it's, it's, it, there's other environmental components as well. People aren't dying from SUDEP, right? out in public, for example, right? The thought there, obviously, someone has a seizure in public, they get help, right? And they, that, that's witnessed. Um, and so, and so that, that, that's, that's the key there. But, but alone in bed, there's no, that the person's by themselves, so then there's no alarm. They have no alarm going off, right? That their breathing's changed. Um, and there may be other, other, other roles of the sleep that makes breathing more dependent on different mechanisms that are really inhibited from that seizure. So what are next steps in your research? We, you have collated this excellent information, all this data, and come to these conclusions, but what are your next steps? We um, want to better understand the circuit as well from the amygdala to the brainstem. 
We also want to really kind of test the hypothesis that this amygdala, that the amygdala, right, is really critical um, for this pathway and for for, for SUDEP. Um, and so, you know, do, doing things like ablation in the amygdala and then te and then seeing if that affects um, uh, breathing after a seizure and see if it stops that seizure-induced apnea or the persistent apnea after seizure ends. And um, so, so that, that's one area um, that we're exploring and we're very excited about. Um, one other thing is, is that, you know, we're interested in looking at is using this as a biomarker too. We want to develop a platform where we can use different um, uh, tools, investigations, um, whether it's respiratory measures just at the bedside or an outpatient clinical setting as well as um, imaging tools um, like MRI or functional imaging, as well as then possible uh, mapping of, of the brain to create um, a risk profile, as well as then the clinical demographics of patients. Um, combine all that together into like a, 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 to you know, identify patients that are high risk, right? So we create, create this risk profile for patients to say, this patient seems to be at high risk, you know, so everyone have epilepsy could undergo this, right? And they could put them into this kind of clinical kind of profile. I think, you know, you know, no one, everyone's, a, if you have epilepsy, if you have intractable epilepsy, you're afraid of SUDEP. Um, I think rightfully so, right? And, and it's, um, and, and trying to alleviate some of that concern and, and, and it would be very helpful. And then also, you know, by saying, hey, you're lower risk, you know, you're less concerned. I think that would help people, number one. I think identifying patients at high risk then would say, hey, look, um, you're high risk, you know, hey, um, you know, we are trying to develop some preventative strategies, I think, therapeutically to prevent SUDEP in patients. And, you know, I think th those are those are the things that we're thinking of. And and could those patients then enroll maybe in a clinical trial or something that we're interested in doing in the future? Um, and, and by identifying the high risk patients, then we identify the, um, that patient population that um, may, may consider something like that. Thank you to Brian for researching SUDEP causes and helping so many of us with epilepsy to have hope for the future when it comes to further minimising SUDEP risk. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insight on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.